Welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast. If you love tennis and want to improve your game, this podcast is for you. Whether it's technique, strategy, equipment, or the mental game, tennis professional Ian Westerman is here to make you a better player. And now, here's Ian. Welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast, your place for free, expert tennis instruction that can truly help you improve your game. Thank you very much for joining me on today's episode. I appreciate your support of the show by downloading the file and listening to it. I hope today's show is going to be helpful to you and your tennis game. That's always my goal. Before we get started, I want to remind you guys about two upcoming clinics. First of all, Baltimore, Maryland, May 28th, 29th, and 30th. I'm going to be working with several listeners of the podcast, and there are still five spots left. I'm opening that clinic up to 12 people, and there's still five spots available. If you're interested, go to EssentialTennis.com and click on Clinics in the menu on the left. Also, Galveston, Texas, this July 16th, 17th, and 18th, I announced that last week. There's only eight spots open for that clinic total, and after announcing it last week, seven spots are already filled, so there's only one spot left. So if you think that you'd like to work with me in in, uh, Galveston this coming July for a weekend, please go check that out right away. Only one spot left. All right, let's uh, go ahead and get to today's show. I'm looking forward to it a lot. Got a great guest lined up for today, so sit back, relax, and get ready for some great tennis instruction. My guest today on the Essential Tennis Podcast is Andy Zodin, who is the host of In the Tennis Zone in season number three, which is a radio show in Colorado and also a podcast. Andy, I I had you on the show back, uh, I think, a couple months ago and had a lot of good feedback from that show. A lot of listeners really enjoyed it, so I'm really happy to have you back on. Well, it's always good to be with you, Ian. I appreciate the opportunity, and uh, you do a great job with it. Thanks. Why don't you, uh, before we get started, tell us a little bit about the the radio show that you do and tell people where they can find it online. Well, they can catch it live streaming on milehighsports.com, where on Sundays we've been going from 10 to 12 Mountain Time, which is 12 to 2 Eastern, but we're getting ready to switch back over to an evening show. The station that I happen to be on is the flagship station of the Denver Nuggets and the Colorado Avalanche, so... Uh, going in the morning up until the time those seasons ended made sense so that I didn't have to move my start times around too much. I also archive all of the podcasts in at TennisZone1510.com. That's www.TennisZone1510.com. And they can go back and and catch all the different interviews that we've had. It's been a really good season. We've had uh, John Isner and we've had his coach, Craig Boynton. And we've had everyone from Rod Laver to Billie Jean King. Uh, it's been a, it's been a great season. I had Cliff and Nancy Ritchie on a couple of weeks ago. Vincent Van Patten was on with me recently. Leif Shiras was on in the last few weeks. Uh, I could go on and on, but it has been really uh, it's been a thrilling season, and it seems like the show just continues to to gain momentum. And we've had such great contributors that it's been uh, it's been really a joy for me to do. Yeah, the the guests that you get are are awesome. I mean, it's, it's tough to get a whole lot better than than the lineup that you've had over the past couple of seasons. So I, I'm sure you're really excited about it. And I really encourage my listeners to go check it out because I'm not aware of anywhere else that 
players of that caliber, both uh, present and past, get their their brains picked by uh, tennis enthusiasts like yourself. So it's it's a great show. Thank you very much. No, I think that's part of the reason we've been successful, Ian, is that there are so few people out there doing you know, sort of what you and I are doing that I don't think that they're being inundated with the request very often, which uh, is definitely in our favor. So they've been gracious enough. And I think people uh, that are tennis enthusiasts and former tennis greats like to see people doing what we're doing to mm-hmm. continue to help grow the game and to grow, uh, you know, the knowledge that people are exposed to, to be able to, to hear from them. So uh, they seem, you know, ready and willing whenever we ask uh, if their schedules allow for it. That's awesome. Well, let's go ahead and get started with today's topic. And uh, as you know, the, the podcast is primarily a Q&A show. But once in a while, I get a question that I, I just think is really interesting. And, and when that happens, I like to have a little conversation and, and discussion with somebody else who really knows what they're talking about uh, having to do with the game of tennis. And today's topic is going to have to do with anticipation in singles. And I'm going to go ahead and read the the question here in a couple of small paragraphs. And this comes from Charles in Santa Cruz, California. He wrote, uh, this was on the forums at EssentialTennis.com, and he said, I think I have decent situational awareness for my level, at least in doubles. The way I gauge that is is when I play a player with a lower rating, like uh, my girlfriend, as an example, who's a 3.5, I feel like I often see where the ball is going to go before the opponent hits it, whereas she will often be surprised. It's hard to summarize how I know that, but I feel it's more like what players' tendencies are, where the ball is, where people are positioned on the court, etc., rather than a cue in the way the opponent is setting up to hit the ball. And or maybe I know where they should hit the ball given uh, a certain scenario, whereas she is still trying to figure it out. In singles, I'm not sure I'm seeing that stuff very well. Yes, I start to notice tendencies and based on that, guess where they are going to hit. And after a while, sometimes I'm successful. I don't know that I'm reading what their body, racket, and swing is doing that well, and I'm probably getting a late jump on a lot of shots, which doesn't help my singles game given my slow foot speed. So uh, Charles kind of wants a, a, a conversation here having to do with anticipation and specifically in singles. And I think it's very good that he pointed out the difference between the two. And I very often get this from, from students, and I'm sure you do as well, Andy, in your, your teaching, that a lot of times players play um, just one or the other exclusively for a long period of time, uh, either singles or doubles. And then they go to the other one kind of expecting that, oh, well, it's, you know, we're still playing tennis, right? We're, we're on a court and we've got some tennis rackets and a tennis ball, you know, how different can it be? Um, but the the rhythm of the points and, and the knowledge and uh, anticipation is very different between the two games, isn't it? No, there's no question about it, Ian. And I think part of the developmental curve of a tennis player is that you go from being primarily reactive in nature to sort of uh, ascending toward a level of being a little more anticipatory in nature, which comes largely with the experience of being out there and doing it. Now, I recently watched a nice interview that Pat Cash did with the Bryan brothers, and one of the comments that they made was that doubles and singles at this point are really two different sports, (laughs) not just two different forms of tennis, but they literally use the term, these are two different sports. And I think a lot of the kids that we work with nowadays do play primarily singles. So I think when they get on the doubles court, um, they have just the opposite problem in that they don't understand some of the the 
the innuendos of the sport of doubles with respect to movement and anticipation and what's coming next, as opposed to the, the rhythm and, and sort of the point structure in a singles match. And I think uh, it's interesting to hear somebody talk about, well, I get it in doubles, but not so much in singles, because that's normally nowadays kind of the opposite of the problem that I think people have. Um, with that said, I think you, in trying to go out there and play your own game first, then have to sort of um, subliminally supplant what you would be thinking into the mind of your opponent and saying, well, based on what I would have done here, i got to assume that this guy may be seeing something similar. And that's sort of, I think, how you ascend to that level, level of anticipation. Uh, it becomes very largely like a pitcher and a batter in terms of the pitcher saying, well, i got a feeling this guy's going to be looking for the curveball here, so therefore I'm going to go high and tight with the fastball. And you got to wonder if the batter's going... This guy probably thinks I'm looking for the curveball. I bet he comes in high and tight and then boom, <laughs> hits the home run kind of thing. <laughs> right. If he guesses right. So it does become a guessing game, and I think you become better at that guessing game the more you're out there playing those points. And, and then maybe a lot of times you'll work with a pro on the court that's coaching two players that are playing singles and saying, aha, now this is where you've got to recognize that your opponent is off balance, they're on the run toward the fence, and yet you chose to stay on the baseline when that's absolutely the time to move forward and expect a ball that you should be able to attack. Some of the things like that that they may not recognize, a pro can help with, but nothing helps more than just going out there and doing it and learning through trial and error. Absolutely. And I, uh, in saying, in getting going with this topic, I'd like to kind of give Charles a pat on the back that, that he's actually starting to become aware of, of these things because there's a lot of rec players and club players out there who are very, very preoccupied with what's going on on their own half of the courts and really miss a lot of information that's extremely vital to being able to to build a good game plan. So I think it's great, first of all, that Charles is getting out there and starting to play some singles. And secondly, he's starting to think about these these types of things. And this kind of, kind of awareness, um, I like that you use the word awareness, Andy, uh, to describe this, is going to really bring Charles up to the next level. And it's going to take some conscious effort at first, Charles, to start picking these things out. And Andy and I are going to go through and, and talk about several specific things that you should be looking for. And at first, it's, it's going to be mental work. You're going to really have to pay attention consciously and, and really look for these things uh, on purpose. But eventually, you're going to start reacting to these things. It'll be second nature. And you're just going to start to move without even having to think about it. And that's just going to take time and, and experience, isn't it, Andy? Correct. I mean, there's there's no doubt about it. I, I think back when I was a kid and I was starting to play match after match after match, and, and not only was I learning from the matches that I was playing, but I was learning a lot, probably even more so in the 12s and the 14s, from the matches that I was watching. And I learned how, for instance, something as simple as wrong-footing a person, mm-hmm. where you know maybe you see a guy uh, hit a kick serve to the backhand in the ad court, and then the return to serve is hit through the middle of the court, and the person comes in and then volleys back into the corner that the ball came from because they expect that their opponent will be running to cover the open court. And as soon as you see them moving in that direction, then you volley, for instance, back behind them and wrong foot them, as they say, uh, you know, that's a very valuable tactic that most serving volleyers employ, you know, pretty regularly and pretty successfully. And if you look back at what John McEnroe used to do to people, everything was done kind of two shots at a time. Uh, very much the way I'm describing now, he would, you know, he would wide serve you and then just knock off a little volley over to the other side. And 
compared to the shots that people are hitting today, none of the shots John McEnroe were, were hitting, if you took them as an individual shot, were that incredible. I mean, they were, they were great the way he put one together with the other to where it was a very effective game, but yet McEnroe's game didn't always incur a lot of risk. It just incurred some great patterns and some great point structure that made a lot of sense uh, that made his game so high percentage. And, and extremely effective and, and, and really tough to do anything you know about what he was doing to you. I, I think it's interesting how you're talking about, um, it, it's, it's funny, kind of anticipating your opponent's anticipations <laughs> and, and trying to be right. uh, one step ahead of them. And a lot of times chess is kind of, uh, I'm sorry, not chess, I got ahead of myself. A lot of times tennis is kind of offhandedly referred to as like a, a physical chess game and, and having to have those tactics. And um, anybody who hasn't played chess um, doesn't really understand the the analogy i think because uh, they don't understand how you have to think two three four moves ahead of your opponent and try to guess all right what is my opponent going to be thinking when i do this what are they going to anticipate and try to do in return and i think that's a a big part of tactics and strategy in tennis that recreational players kind of miss and i I like the example you gave of going behind uh, a player who is going to probably run towards the open court where it, it seems obvious. All right, well, my opponent is obviously going to hit the ball there because there's a ton of open court and just start to run for that open court. And it's one of my favorite things to do is is uh, to fake in that uh, situation and start you know just booking it towards that open court. And then as soon as my opponent is about to to make contact, uh, stop and go back to where I just came from uh, to to try to anticipate the fact that they're going to anticipate. Where, where I'm anticipating <laughs> and it, it can get exactly. uh, kind of confusing, but I think that, I think that's incredibly fun and uh, something that obviously you're aware of out there on the court, but I think a lot of uh, listeners might not be. Well, and you use the, the, the chess analogy, which really is, is spot on Ian. And I'll tell you a story is that a buddy of mine uh, by the name of Philip Farmer was coaching the Bryan brothers uh, for a few years before David McPherson came along who they're with now. And he was down in Australia with the boys, and uh, it was the year that Phil Jackson had taken off from coaching the Lakers, and he had gone down to Australia, and he became big fans of the Bryans, and he uh, he was watching a lot of tennis, and Philip Farmer got the opportunity to get to know Phil Jackson pretty well, and this was at a time when Roger Federer was really starting to to move, you know, head and shoulders above Andy Roddick in the rankings, and you could just see that the things that Federer was doing on the court were just just brilliant in nature, and just his all-court game was really starting to to flourish and to to ascend to the level that we're now used to. And after the tournament was over, Philip got a phone call and he answered the phone, and it was Phil Jackson. And he kind of he said that he he said, "I think I can help Andy Roddick." <laughs> he said, uh, "Okay." And Philip Farmer said, "All right, I'm I'm listening." And he goes, "Well, here's the thing that I, I worked on with." Uh, you know, with Michael Jordan and with Kobe and with Shaq. And, of course, at that point, Philip Farmer was really listening. And he said, let me ask you a question about uh, about Andy Roddick. He said, does Andy play much chess? And he said, no. He goes, I don't think he plays any. He said, what about video games? Does he play video games? He goes, yeah, probably three or four hours a day. And he said, well, what about Federer? And he goes, yeah, actually, Roger does play a lot of chess. And he said, if Andy Roddick took the time that he was using on video games and became a chess player, his tennis game would improve tenfold, in my opinion, because, you know, you just see the way Roger Federer approaches the sport very methodically, uh, very calculating. 
You don't see his eyes very, you know, you kind of think of Andy Roddick. His eyes are pretty shifty. He's always kind of doing little things, uh, you know, grabbing a shirt, little things like that. And Federer is just always in cruise control, whether he's walking from one side of the court to the other or getting ready to return serve or even in the midst of play. He just seems like he's kind of floating out there. And most guys don't don't look like they're that at ease on the tennis court. And Phil Jackson uh, uh, attributes an athlete's success to the ability to think ahead, like you're saying, and be a chess player and be calculating in nature, and that the mindset that goes from the chessboard to the field of play is one that an athlete can really use as another club in the bag, as another strength. And this, this is the kind of mindset that helps you sort of naturally create your own skill set to be able to be anticipatory in nature as opposed to just reactive. Before we get to our, our next part of our conversation, I want to tell my listeners about TennisTours.com, where you guys can go to get individual tickets, ticket packages, and ticket packages along with accommodations to travel to professional tennis events, whether it be WTA or ATP Tour. And they carry tickets to all the Grand Slams along with a lot of the Masters 1000 Series tournaments. So definitely go check them out. They've been doing this for a long time, since 1987, and they have just about any type of ticket you might want, whether it be ground passes or or luxury suites. Plus, when you use the promotional code ESSENTIAL with a capital E, you guys can get a a $25 discount off your purchase at TennisTours.com. So if you're going to a professional tournament and, and going to watch the pros, which is always an awesome experience, please check them out and support them. Tell them thank you for being a sponsor of the Essential Tennis Podcast. Well, let's go ahead and, and with that, start talking about some specifics, Andy. And, and I've got a couple of things listed here that, in my opinion, are, are definitely important to, to be aware of and, and hopefully start to make automatic and, and, and start to notice without even spending a whole lot of mental energy to, to really watch your opponent. Uh, although, don't get me wrong, listeners, you guys should be paying close attention to your opponent, but um, you just don't want to make it uh, an active mental process. Hopefully, eventually, it becomes uh, second nature. Um, and let's talk first about something that you mentioned earlier, Andy, and that is the balance of the body and, I guess, body uh, position on the courts, uh, but, but balance specifically. Let's talk a little bit about anticipating a response from our opponents when their body is off balance and they're obviously not in a comfortable position uh, physically. What should listeners be looking for in that situation? Well, depending on what the, the style of play that the player uh, is uh, I, or the player employs, you're either going to see a ball that they sort of flail at when they're on the run because a lot of players don't have the ability to separate their foot speed from their racket head speed. Uh, yeah. Example being, you see a guy that's on the run, and then the faster they're running, the faster they're swinging. Mm-hmm. Whereas some of the higher-level players are able to sort of operate, let's say, two separate uh, transmissions, one for their upper body, one for their lower body. The smarter players that have that ability to control their body a little better maybe on the run, if they're really in full full gear to a tennis ball, are able to maybe slow down their racket head because they know that a control component has to come somewhere into this equation, and they're able to do that. But I'd say you're going to see one of two things, either a ball that kind of, kind of comes floating back because they realize I'm on, de- I'm on defense now, I just want to make sure I at least get this ball back in play, and maybe that's the time to seize an opportunity, move forward, and realize you're going to get a, maybe a shoulder high ball or higher to either hit a high volley or an overhead off of, 
when they're on the dead rung like that, or move forward anyway and let them take that flailing swing at the ball because the percentage chance of them actually hurting you and hitting some laser passing shot if they're not, let's say, a 5-0 player or better is probably pretty minimal, and you give them an opportunity to just kind of hang themselves with a wild swing on the run. So I'd say moving forward on a shot where your opponent is off balance, whether they're playing defensively or offensively, probably behooves you because, as I say, you're either going to give yourself an opportunity to then put away the next ball or they're probably going to go for something maybe outside of their comfort zone, and then that's going to be low percentage in nature. You're going to get some free points that way. Really good observations, and that's something I've definitely noticed in in teaching rec players myself is that players, especially if they're not – kind of gifted naturally as an athlete uh, to, to begin with, have a really hard time separating their lower body and upper body. Um, and they get really, really uh, quick and, and frantic with their lower body and their their, their swing just kind of follows suit. Um, that's really interesting that you put that together along with uh, anticipating. Um, and and I, I'd like to point out the, the flip side as well. Um, let's say that you've just hit a great shot, Charles, and everybody else listening, and you put your opponent off balance, whether it be uh, maybe retreating back away from the baseline because you hit a good deep shot or maybe running off the court to the right or to the left because you hit a nice wide shot. If you consistently do not follow that forwards as Andy is suggesting and you just stand back there at the baseline and, and watch them and do nothing about it, they're going to pick up on that and and know that they've basically got a free shot back into the court and they're going to be able to hit up pretty much whatever they want. Now, if they're not very smart <laughs> and they're not very controlled, they might go ahead and try to crush a, a winner anyway, like uh, like what Andy was describing. Uh, but if they, if they are smart and they see that you're not doing anything about the fact that they're off balance, um, it's going to really put them at ease much more. They're not going to be under any pressure to hit anything good. They'll be able to just play a, an easy defensive shot back to the middle of the court. Well, and I think that example holds true even more often on a more regular basis with respect to um, your ability to gain your, gain your own comfort zone in returning serve. And if a person serves big, and I'm playing a big server, but they're not coming in behind that serve, I feel a huge sigh of relief in just being able to block a return back back down the middle of the court yeah. and get it up high in the air and let it just carry deep in the court, not have to, you know, flirt with disaster of having to, uh, you know, get every return down low at their feet because they're just attacking like a madman and, and they're and they're effective in doing so. It takes a, a lot of the pressure off to know, okay, well, if I can just, you know, block this return and put it back in play and kind of regain the center of the court and neutralize that big serve by just making a high percentage of returns, I've got a better game than this guy. Outside of this big serve that this guy's bringing, I can hit more balls back. And to know that all I have to do is, and you see, again, using Federer as an example, you see him against a lot of these guys that don't come in behind their big servers. And I hate to use the example, but Andy Roddick is (laughs) the guy that comes to mind that doesn't always take full advantage, at least against Roger, with that big serve, which is, I think, largely why the record between those two is what it is. Uh, obviously, Andy almost got over on him at Wimbledon last year, but aside from that, some of those matches have been pretty one-sided. And and I think Roger realizes, well, Andy's got, you know, possibly the most dangerous serve in the game, but the fact is, is that I've got a pretty crisp return game. I don't have to be overly aggressive with it because I know once we get into these points that I have the upper hand. 
And you, you just don't see Roger sweating too much out there the way most guys are when they're playing Andy Roddick because he understands that dynamic so clearly and then realizes, I take away this guy's serve and I kind of own him. And I think that's something that a lot of other players need to realize, that if you if you have your serve as a weapon, it's only largely going to be an effective weapon if you back it up with the next shot, which, again, was what John McEnroe did so brilliantly. Sure. Well, let's uh, let's switch gears a little bit and move to a different topic and talk a little bit about swing technique and and mechanics having to do with uh, watching your opponent and seeing what they're doing with the racket. And I'll give uh, one quick example of that, and then I'll, I'll toss it over to you, Andy, to see what you think. But um, let's go ahead and keep with that example of uh, a big. Let's say that you have a big serve, Charles, and you're looking at your what your opponent's reactions are. If they're going to start playing it safe, like what Andy is describing, and essentially just block it back in play. Um, that's an opportunity for you. And what you should be looking for uh, as you make your serve and uh, you, you get prepared for their response, you should be looking at their where they're taking the racket back to and what the angle of their racket face is. If they take their racket back shoulder height and their face is open, they're getting ready to just block it back or, or play a slice or something that's not going to be terribly offensive. Uh, if, on the other hand, they, they take their racket back uh, well behind them and the face is closed, they're going to they're going to be preparing to make a drive or some type some type of topspin shot. And uh, myself personally, I'm definitely always looking for these opportunities. I, I love the net uh, and I love closing in. And when I see my opponent taking the racket back with an open racket face, uh, I definitely love sneaking in there real quick and trying to uh, catch them off guard. What do you think, Andy? No, I, I agree. I think that you have to, uh, over a period of the first few games of the match, you know. Get a, get a feel for, for what those tendencies are. And sometimes, uh, as you say, the preparation of the racket will, will really give you a very clear indication. Sometimes that will, that will belie what's coming. And I'll, I, I hearken back to when I first started teaching tennis, uh, and, uh, I was working for Cliff Drysdale and another South African tennis pro by the name of Billy Freer, who was a great player. But Cliff Drysdale used to love to give Billy a hard time because, uh, he would say to him something like Cliff would come to the net and Billy would take a kind of a, maybe a wild swing and hit a passing shot. And Cliff would say in that South African uh, accent of his, he'd say, Billy, how can I possibly know what you're doing when you've got no idea yourself? <laughs> and so I think, I think sometimes you have to be careful that you overanalyze what it looks like somebody's trying to do because then all of a sudden something else can come and it wasn't even necessarily anything that they meant. So what I tell my players is somehow or another, Get to two all, and then at two all, start to now formulate a game plan that maybe has some definitive intentions to it. In the meantime, worry about your game. Worry about high percentages of first serves. Worrying about you know high percentage of returns back in the court. And at two all, then start to say to yourself, okay, where's the, you know, where's the rubber going to meet the road here with respect to where I'm going to choose to either attack this guy because I think he might be a little steadier than I am or just wait him out, give him enough rope to hang himself. The shots that he's hitting look way too low percentage. I can't believe that at 4-all, this guy's going to be able to do what he's done at 1-all. And, and understand that there's much different mindsets at different points in the set. When I was 14 years old, I had a coach that was getting me ready to play a match against a kid, and he said, look, this kid's all forehand. He can't do anything close to what he does with his forehand on his backhand side, so play that backhand side and play it till you're blue in the face. Well, on the first point of the match, I served and volleyed, hit a volley over to his backhand, 
he went running over, jumped out of his shoes, came off the ground with both feet, and hit this monster backhand passing shot up the line <laughs> like it was somebody on the tour. And I didn't go back to the backhand anymore. And I came off the court. I think I got beat, beat three and two or something. And my coach kind of slapped me upside the head, you know, sort of playfully. And he said, what were you thinking? What happened to playing the backhand? I said, well, didn't you see that backhand that he hit on the first point? And he just kind of hit himself in the forehead like, you've got to be kidding. He's like, make him hit it 10 times. I bet you you would have made that shot two or three times. And I just didn't get that at 14. I mean, I was just, the guy hit it such a brilliant shot that I was convinced, okay, I shouldn't do that anymore. And I completely abandoned my game plan. So, so know that at two all, you're going to say, okay, this is where I'm going to, this is where I'm going to be able to exploit a weakness. This, this person doesn't run very well. I'm going to move him from corner to corner a little bit. This person passes well out of the corners. I'm going to approach up the middle, take away the angles, you know, but give yourself a, at least a half a set to make determinations based on what you think this person's tendencies are. And that still doesn't guarantee you that that's really the reality of what they're doing. I think it gives you at least a little bit of information to work with, probably something that you can make a halfway educated guess, but you still need to (laughs) leave yourself open to other possibilities. Because like I said, sometimes a person will hit a shot and they were going across court, but somehow or another nature took its course another way and it went down the line (laughs) and the guy didn't even mean to do that. Right. It seems like uh, it seems like there's a really delicate balance here, and that almost like there's a uh, there's just an art to this. And uh, I, I'm hearing you say that uh, on one hand, we, we don't want to overanalyze and get uh, too caught up with with their technique and what they're doing with the racket. Uh, but on the other hand, we definitely uh, want to have some kind of game plan eventually, and uh, and and not just you know hit random shots either. Um, it, it can be kind of tough to to balance those two things out. Uh, can it? Well, it really can. And I think a lot of that comes from your own level of confidence in yourself. That's, that's your, your number one priority is making sure that you have your mindset in a place that allows you to play the kind of tennis that you're capable of playing and that you're confident in playing. Because one of the mistakes that I think players make at, let's say, the 3-0 through the 4-0 levels is that they put exploitation of their opponent's weaknesses above playing their own game. Hmm. And what you you know what you'll find if you talk to the pros and you say, you know, describe your game to me. If you said describe your game to me, Andy Roddick, you'd say big serve followed with a big forehand. Describe your game to me, Rafa. Oh, I'm just going to hit big hooking forehands and I'm just going to wear you down. I'm going to run every single ball down till you're just laying on the side of the court, you know, ready to be taken off on a stretcher. Describe your game to me, Serena Williams. I'm just going to be a better athlete, and I'm just going to come up with the goods on the big points, and I'm going to hit the ball harder than you, and when the points are the biggest, that's when I'm going to play my best. Then you say, describe your game to me, Mr. 3-5 player, and he takes out like a phone book, and he starts to turn the page. Well, <laughs> if this happens, then I'm going to do that, but if this happens, oh, then I'll do that, and if this guy's you know kind of big and overweight, then I'm going to hit a drop shot. Even though I don't have a drop shot, I'm going to, you know what I mean? And all of a sudden, it becomes this, this sort of, you know, convoluted, I'm going to do this if this happens, and I'm going to do that if that happens, but they don't even take into consideration the fact that they're asking themselves to do things that they don't do. So first things first as a tennis player is identify your game. Know what under pressure you're going to do. At at four all in the fifth set, Pete Sampras is going to serve big, and he's going to serve you off the court. Andre Agassi is going to grind you down off of the ground. He's going to stand on the baseline. And he's going to hit too many balls in the court. 
to too many corners for you to do anything about it. They're going to keep it simple. Brilliant athletes, and the more brilliant the athlete is, the more I think a simplification of the game plan is then allowed because they know what they do under pressure. They know what their out pitch is. And that's part of that developmental curve and going from being a reactive player to an anticipatory player is that ability to first identify, here's who I am, here's what I do, I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. And then after that, I'm going to say, okay, within the framework of the game that I really own, this is where I'm going to now apply those things based on where I think this person is strong or, or not as strong. Good stuff, Andy. Well, tell you what, I, I always know that I've got a great guest on the podcast when I only get to about half of the, the things in my outline. And uh, that's the case today. <laughs> we, we've had some really well, good discussions. We've determined that it's based on how long-winded I am. I think it's more <laughs> the problem than anything, Ian. Well, that's uh, it's usually directly uh, correlated to to how much uh, knowledge and passion one has for the game. So don't worry, that's not a negative, buddy. All right. Well, I appreciate it, and I always enjoy it. You always have a you always have a good lineup of questions ready, and uh, it's great to be able to reach out to your listeners and and hopefully impart something that at least makes a little bit of sense to them. And, uh, and then we need to get you back on in the tennis zone again because I got some good feedback when you came on my show as well. Oh, yeah? That's good to hear. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I'd love to. And uh, it was a lot of fun. First time that I've done uh, a live radio segments, and uh, I enjoyed it a lot. So I'd love to do that. Well, we'll definitely keep going back and forth. I think we've got a good thing going here. you got a great deal, and uh, I think we're going pretty good too. So uh, it's great to work with you. You too. One more time before we wrap things up, please tell my, my listeners where to go to, to download the, the podcast segments. You want to go to www.tennisone1510, tennisone1510.com, and you will uh, definitely, as, as Ian said, you'll definitely get uh, to hear interviews with some of the top players, coaches, commentators, and personalities in the sport. Matter of fact, we got a guy coming on this Saturday, or excuse me, this Saturday, this Sunday, Ian, who's out in your kind of part of the country, which oh, yeah? is uh, Steve Flink. Yeah, the, the, the famed tennis journalist, Steve Flink, is coming on, and I believe he's actually being inducted into the Eastern Tennis Hall of Fame on Friday night, and will be coming on with my wife and myself this Sunday. She's coming back on the show with me as it is our second anniversary, so uh, we like to get together for those kinds of occasions and, and do the show together. Steve Flink will be joining us, and uh, another New Jersey boy, Tommy Fontana, who played with me at the University of Texas, will be coming on, and he'll be addressing the issue of tennis and sports parenting. And he's got four kids now. He played number one at the University of Texas, played a little bit on a tour, and uh, has some great sort of East Coast insights into the sport of tennis. And now that he's got four kids, all of which are pretty athletic, uh, a lot of what he's learned by being, uh, being a sports parent and some of the things that he's seeing out there and what he thinks are effective parenting techniques and what he thinks are some of the ones that are maybe leading some kids and their parents and those relationships astray a little bit. I think we've got a lot of both out there these days. Well, Andy, thank you very much for your time. It's been great to have you on the show again, and uh, I look forward to being on your show and having you back again on the Essential Tennis Podcast as well. Always a pleasure, Ian. I appreciate it. That does it for episode number 114 of the Essential Tennis Podcast. Thank you very much for joining me and my guest today on the show. I appreciate you being a listener and downloading the podcast. It means a lot to me. 
In closing up today's show, just two things. First of all, I want to recognize a couple people who donated to the podcast last week, which I always appreciate very much. First of all, Gavin in London, England, donated $10 to the Essential Tennis Podcast. Thank you, Gavin. Robert in British Columbia, Canada, started a new $10 per month subscription donation. And Alex in Houston, Texas, donated $25 to Essential Tennis. So thank you to you three for your support last week. I appreciate it very much. And if the podcast has been helpful to your game, please consider making a one-time donation or a monthly donation, your choice. Just go to EssentialTennis.com, and on the front page on the lower right, you'll see a box that says Donate. Go check that out. And one other way that you guys can help support me, I've just started getting some new advertisers on the website, which is really exciting for me because it really helps finance the, my, my, my time here and, and what I'm doing on the website. Uh, it really kind of helps me move forwards and, and hopefully move towards the future of doing this full time. And you guys can help support those advertisers just by clicking on the ads that are on my, my website. And the two newest ones are found on the forums. If you guys go to EssentialTennis.com, then click on Forums, you'll see two ad boxes on the top. One is for Babolat and one is for Tennis Metro. Just go, please check those out. And you don't have to buy anything. In fact, neither of them require any kind of purchase to, to go support. Um, Tennis Metro, you can get a free account. And Babolat, it's a, a contest that you can sign up for just filling in your, your information. So if you appreciate what I'm doing here in the podcast and in the rest of the website, please go support my advertisers so that they continue to advertise with me. And by doing that, I can continue to move forwards and, and, and move uh, hopefully towards doing this more and more during the week and, and producing more content and giving you guys more free instruction. So I'd appreciate that if you guys would help me out. All right, that does it for this week. Again, thank you very much for joining me. Hopefully you enjoyed today's show, and I will catch you guys again next week. Until then, take care, and good luck with your tennis. 